Good morning, everyone. This is Rona Palmer from Fluke Excelix, and thanks so much for joining us today for this month's Best Practices webinar. And I'd like to start by clarifying in our Best Practices webinars, we focus less on specific technologies or products and more on maintenance strategies. And we invite guest speakers from a variety of industries to share their expertise. And I'm really delighted to have with us today some, a name you might be familiar with from his monthly column in Plant Services magazine, and that's Tom Moriarty, who's not only a leadership expert, but the founder of Allidade MER Inc. And he's going to be presenting today's topic, Productive Leadership, How to Create the Culture and Performance You Envision. And good morning, Tom, and uh, thanks for being with us today. Hi, good morning, Rona. How are you? I'm doing uh, doing pretty well. It's early in my world, but I'm, I'm happy to be here. Um, Tom, I'm, while we're giving our listeners a moment to log in, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, Tom, um, you've devoted so much of your professional career and your writing, and now I understand even a new book, to the people side, the human side of the reliability equation. And maybe you can share with our listeners what, what kind of inspired you to, to go that route in your career? Yeah, so uh, I put up my, uh, my background here on the slide. And uh, really, uh, I had 24 years in the US Coast Guard, uh, starting out as an enlisted person and then uh, having spent time as an officer uh, when I left the service after 24 years in 2003, I began working as a consultant and uh, I went into many different environments, different uh, communities of practice, and I saw it was the same across all of them that there were too many failed projects. Uh, you know, the number that gets bandied about is 70% of all change management um, activities fail. Um, that 70% is actually a very weak number. It's not really based on anything if you trace back the origins of it, uh, but it's probably in the ballpark of 70 or even 80% of all of the initiatives that are tried fail. And so uh, I was kind of discouraged about that. And, and what that leads to is uh, people being a little bit gun shy about trying to get other projects or, or programs in place. Um, and when you kind of unpeel that orange uh, or the apple or the onion, the different layers of it, uh, what came to me was it was always about accountability and leadership deficiencies. So while my background is really in hard engineering and working in maintenance and reliability uh, and in the operations side, um, I really began to believe that the issue of accountability and leadership was central to any sort of uh, program or process that needed to get put into place. Well, great. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Tom, and I, I look forward to uh, the rest of the presentation. But before we get started, um, a couple of quick notes for our listeners. We're recording today's session, so uh, and we'll share a link to the recording um, later on this week. So we do have your phones muted, but Tom has agreed to um, answer any of your questions at the end of his presentation. But please feel free to type your questions into the questions feature and go to webinar at any point during the presentation. And we'll go ahead and read them to Tom at the conclusion. He's also agreed to share a PDF of his slide deck with our listeners. 
and there'll be a brief survey that we publish when the webinar ends where you can request a copy. All right, uh, so without further ado, Tom, I'm going to turn it over to you. Okay, thank you, Rona. Uh, so just a quick uh, bit of my background. As I said, I was in the Coast Guard for 24 years. I was an enlisted machinery technician, went to OCS and retired as a lieutenant commander. Uh, I did early, I, I break up my career into three different segments. The first segment I was uh, doing coastal search and rescue in law enforcement. Uh, the center portion of my career, I was a cutterman uh, on three different ships uh, doing North Atlantic fisheries patrols and Caribbean uh, patrols. And then the last third, I was doing operations support uh, from shoreside. So I was a boat coxswain, boat engineer, boat crewman. I was an uh, emergency medical technician. I was a law enforcement uh, boarding officer. Um, I was a shop leading petty officer, division officer, department head and executive officer. Uh, in 2003, I was the Coast Guard's Federal Engineer of the Year. That's a National Society of Professional Engineers sponsored award. Uh, but essentially, I was in maintenance management and condition monitoring uh, at the end of my career. Um, educationally, I have an MBA and a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering, and I'm a, a PE, a professional engineer. Uh, I founded my company in 2004. Uh, we do productive leadership, asset management, maintenance management, reliability engineering. Of course, we do assessments, strategy development, implementation. Uh, we do workshops, coaching, investigative analysis. And I work across all sorts of uh, industries, uh, everything from you know oil and gas to mining to pharmaceuticals to major universities. I've uh, been an SMRP member since 02, uh, CMRP since 03. I'm currently the SMRP's uh, Government Relations Committee Chair. Uh, just happened in uh, at the uh, annual conference. Uh, also the Florida Chapter Board uh, and uh, the Central East District Director in the state of Florida. I'm an approved provider with SMRP and uh, presented many papers. Uh, and as Rona said, I've been writing a monthly column in Plant Services Magazine for about 11 years. Uh, you can see my compilation of articles at the, uh, the web address indicated. And yes, I have just published a book and actually just got my first hard copy of it uh, this week. Uh, I'll be at the uh, Accelerate Conference signing books and at the uh, Industrial Press Bookstore. So that's my background. And so what is today's webinar about? So what's the problem? The most common reason that organizations get insufficient value from their investments is a deficiency in one or more of these areas. Not having a culture of accountability, not having a system that assigns accountability and individual leadership ability. So let's get into it. What we're gonna talk about today is our brains and then we're gonna talk about memories, behaviors, habits and culture. And then I'll give an overview of both the organizational reliability model and the productive leadership model. So our brains, our brains are very incredible uh, things that uh, we've been given, but they have limitations. So if we get down to the very basics of it, when we're born, we have DNA-based neuron connections, and those account for about 17% of all of our neuron connections. They uh, provide two different functions, biological functions, such as breathing, heartbeat, nervous system, and digestion, as well as the sensory functions, our ability to see, to make noises, to hear, touch, taste, smell. 
Um, basically, it gives our brain the connections to the world outside of our brain. And experience-based connections are the other 83% of our neuron connections, and they happen throughout interactions with our surroundings. Every moment of every day over our entire life, our senses are picking up information and our brains are processing it. So our brain then filters and processes that information. And uh, of course, we, we probably know this from experience, but young people have a greater, they have greater what's called neuroplasticity, means it's easier for them to learn. But us older folks have a greater volume of memories, so we can process information faster. And uh, our brain's basic function supports the idea that leaders are not born, they can actually be made. And I believe that wholeheartedly. Um, there's a uh, TED talk called What's So Special About the Human Brain that I recommend. Uh, and uh, you can find that, just go to TED Talks and, and punch that title in or go to this link. And uh, within that TED talk, some very interesting information was presented. Uh, the first thing is that uh, humans have high neuron density and a large cerebral cortex when compared to other primates. So that gives us greater density. That greater density means we have increased capacity for memories and reasoning. And the cerebral cortex, uh, that's what controls higher cognitive functioning, the reasoning capability. The human body consumes about 2,000 calories of, uh, uh, of energy per day. And every 1 billion neurons requires about six calories per day. So that means the human on average has 86 billion neuron connection or neurons. So they consume about 516 calories per day. So for a human, human brains are about 2% of our body mass, but they consume about 25% of our total energy consumption. Why is that important? Because our brains try to manage energy. The reasoning and deep thought processes that our brain uses consumes a lot of energy. So our brains try to create routines or what's called habits because habits consume a lot less energy. So some other important points about the brain or parts of the brain, the hippocampus, that's as uh, these sensory information comes into our brain, it generates a coding system it starts allocating those uh, connections of those synapses to store the sensory data in specific locations. Our cerebral cortex, again, that's the part of the brain used for complex and focused thought. And though that thought, that, that complex thought consumes a great deal of energy. The other part of our brain that's really important is the basal ganglia. That's the part of, brain, of our brains that recognize recognizes patterns and runs memorized sequences or habits. And so recognizing those patterns and running sequences consumes a lot less energy. Um, so if we didn't have this capability, we would be overwhelmed. Just think about the myriad of things you have to do every day from tying your shoes to brushing your teeth. If we didn't have the basal ganglia, we would have to relearn each and everything that we do every day. So our brain is designed to do things more efficiently. So what's important to remember about our brain is that everybody has the capability to learn throughout our lives. You can learn, your team members can learn. The hippocampus sorts and indexes new sensory information. And reasoning happens in the cerebral cortex and consumes a lot of energy. And the basal ganglia is where we process repetitive tasks or repetitive activities. And it requires very little energy.
So we're going to uh, do the first poll question now. So Rona, would you um, administer the poll, please? Sure. So Tom is asking for your input based on your experiences. Change, he mentioned uh, the large percentage of change initiatives that fail in the long term. And what do you believe? He'd like your input on what, in your experience, the reasoning would be. Is there not enough communication about the change? Or are things that need to be done differently not well defined? Or perhaps what is required to carry out the change isn't provided? Or is it that leaders aren't clear on what is being done wrong? So we're asking you, that they might all be factors, but what do you think is the most important factor or reason why things fail? All right, so people are definitely thinking about this quite a bit, and we've got about two-thirds of the vote in. We'll give everyone a little more, a few more moments to formulate their answers. And we'll only share these in aggregate, so there's no wrong answers here. Okay, I'm gonna, oh, a couple more people still voting. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and share the results. So, Tom, it looks like 35% of our listeners say it's communication is the primary reason. Then 29% say things are not, the changes aren't well defined. 19% is saying what's required hasn't been provided and 18% say leaders aren't clear on what the problem is. How does that align, Tom, with what you're expecting? Yeah, so uh, I, I think that from those results, you can agree that there's a lot of reasons why, why change doesn't work. And I think if you boil a lot of those down, they come back to accountability and leadership. So um, let's go ahead and continue on. Uh, so the next topic we're going to talk about is uh, memories, behaviors, habits, and culture. So the very simple definition I use for culture is that culture is what most people do most of the time. And so what people do are behaviors. So to create the right culture, we have to define the right behaviors, and then we have to guide the right behaviors until they become habits. When most people exhibit the same habits, the habits become the culture. So let's start out from the basics, short-term memories. So short-term memories are unstable. The initial synapse connections are weak. They only linger for a few seconds to maybe a few minutes. We can extend those memories by repetition to maybe a few hours or a couple of days. My example of this is when I go golfing and I meet somebody new on the first tee. I ask them their name, give them my name, and by the time I hit my tee shot and get off the front of the tee box, I've already forgotten that person's name. So I've gotten into the habit of writing their name on the scorecard so that I can remember it. I repeat it a few times, and then I can at least remember it through that round of golf. So attendance at training events or like this webinar, what we're doing is loading a lot of information into your short-term memory. But the thing about short-term memory, if we don't use it, we lose it that information will be lost. So how do we convert short-term memories into long-term memories? There's actually four ways that the human brain goes about that. The first is spaced repetition. So that's, uh, if you remember back to high school, when you were learning the Pythagorean 
uh, theorem or the Pythagorean equation. The teacher wrote the equation on the board, explained what it meant, went over several problems, gave you homework assignments, gave you quizzes, maybe an exam, maybe it was on the final exam. So all those different iterations of looking at the information was spaced repetition and it burned it into your into your memory. I'm sure all of you are sitting there thinking, oh yeah, it's A squared plus B squared equals C squared. The second and third are basically, they're very similar. The, what they're doing is basically establishing pattern hooks. And what that means is remember the hippocampus is uh, creating a filing system within your brain. So what you're doing is storing similar information in similar regions of your brain. So it makes it much easier to recall the information. So engaging multiple set senses, think about learning to drive a car. Your hands were on the steering wheel, your vision was seeing relative speed and it was um, associating that with acceleration and deceleration. Uh, you're looking in your mirrors, uh, your driving coach was explaining to you the rules and all that. So you're engaging multiple senses. Similar experiences are typical examples are on the job training or computer based training where you're putting yourself in the same scenario so that you're able to repeat and learn those, uh, create those pattern hooks. The last one is, is one that I don't really recommend for the workplace that's having a traumatic event or some significant emotional event. An example would be a bad accident. I was in a plant uh, not long ago where I actually witnessed a fellow lean up against a temporary railing on an elevated platform and he fell about 16 feet. It was horrible, but uh, it is locked into my memory. So the thing to remember is that long-term memories are what you use to perform behaviors. Short-term memories can be used as well, but what we're after here is to create long-term memories so that the behaviors start to become consistent. So how do we go from a long-term memory to a habit? Well, let's look at uh, brain science here. Uh, a lot of experiments are run on rats because rat brains are a good analog for a human cerebral cortex and basal ganglia function. So what they do in a typical test is they will create a very simple maze. The rat will be placed behind a partition and then a reward will be placed in a, in a consistent location in the, in the maze. The partition will be raised. The rat smells the reward, starts searching for it and eventually they find the reward. And that test will be repeated dozens of times. So what ends up happening on the left, you'll see the initial maze runs. These are the brain signals coming off of the rat that's running the maze. On the right is after dozens of repeated maze runs. The interesting part is here in the center. This is when control shifts from the cerebral cortex to the basal ganglia, the learning curve. This is when a habit is established. So you'll see in the center, there's very low brain activity uh, after several maze runs have occurred. That's because the habit has been established. The rat doesn't have to think when it's transiting the, transiting the maze. An example in your personal life, think about when you drive home from work every day or drive to work every day. What you're doing is you're following the same path. You're probably not thinking about how much twist you're putting on the steering wheel, how much pressure you're putting on the gas or the brakes. You're probably not even thinking too much about the turns that you have to make to get to and from work. Your brain, your cerebral cortex is working on some other issue. 
Maybe it's a, a report that you have to get done. Maybe it's getting your kid to soccer practice after you get home from work. Maybe it's, you know, thinking about a, uh, a gift for your spouse's birthday or whatever it is, but you're not thinking about the activities of driving. So that means that your basal ganglia is control is in control of how you're driving home. And uh, the interesting thing is I bet every day when you park your car where you, or your truck where you normally park it, you're probably plus or minus three inches from where you left in the morning without even trying to do that. So that's how you shift from the cerebral cortex to the basal ganglia and that the basal ganglia takes less energy uh, so that now your brain is free to work on other issues. So that's how habits are established. Another thing about habits is that old habits are persistent. They're never erased. People can and will revert to old habits when there's number one, a payoff greater than the probability of a consequence. And two, they perceive that the old habit is better for them than the new one. So to maintain the right habits, a leader has to be able to define and provide what's needed to enable the right behaviors. This is what we're going to address when we talk about the organizational reliability model and then consistently reinforce the right behaviors and consistently correct non-complying behaviors. This is what we're going to talk about under the productive leadership model. So to create the right culture, remember to create the right culture, we have to create the right behaviors to create the right behaviors. We need three things. We need direction, which is the end state to be achieved. And think of that, about that as mission, vision, values, and objectives. We need guidance. How do we get there? So policies, plans, processes, procedures, and measures. And then we also need assets. What's needed to get there? What do we need to carry out the guidance? So things like personnel, number of personnel, the equipment, software, et cetera. And uh, productive leaders apply leadership roles, attributes, and skills to guide behaviors aligned with the guidance. And then repetition of the right behaviors becomes the right habits, and the right habits become the right culture. So let's talk about the organizational reliability model. And you can think of this as an asset management system that assigns accountability. So this is the organizational reliability model and the organizational reliability model defines and assigns accountabilities across each leadership level. So when I say across each leadership level, I'm talking about a supervisor to a workforce, a manager to a supervisor, a plant manager to their direct report department heads, that sort of leadership level. Okay. And there's three core activities that go on within this model. The first is creating new requirements. So senior leaders are accountable for new requirements from external opportunities and threats. So if I get my little pointer going here, opportunities and threats come from the outside environment. And the upper half of the model is what senior leaders are accountable for. And the lower half of the model is what subordinates are accountable for. So the second thing is modifying current requirements. Senior leaders are accountable to modify current requirements from internal strengths and weaknesses. So as we execute, we're going to have strengths and weaknesses. Those could be deficiencies. There could be opportunities to improve. So in either case, they go through this upper process. The third thing is execution. And that's on the bottom portion of the model. Execution is where subordinate leaders and team members are accountable for executing current requirements and communicating 
deficiencies. So when I talk about current requirements, that's current guidance and current assets. The reason I state it this way is that a subordinate person doesn't have the authority to change guidance and assets. So they can only be expected to perform to the level of guidance and assets that are available to them. On the top half of the model, when I talk about assess, what they're doing is taking strengths and weaknesses and opportunities and threats, prioritizing them and determining which ones they're going to actually do something about. They carry those over into defined. In defined, that's where you apply Lean, Six Sigma, engineering analysis, RCM, whatever the tool might be so that you can define a response to that SWOT, strength, weaknesses, opportunity, or threat. Within this circle, we haven't actually authorized anything to go forward, but if we come up with a good solution, once it passes over into implement, we have now authorized that solution to be put into place. The senior leader is then accountable to implement. And to implement means to develop all of the detailed guidance, the policies, plans, processes, procedures, and measures, provide the assets that are required by identifying the assets in terms of the type, quantity, quality, and life cycle of each asset that's going to be needed, and then provide training to put it into practice. Okay. So if we look at just the bottom half of the model, look up here in the upper left section, this is a, indicating a good balance between guidance, assets, and execution. You notice those three circles are about equal size, and this yellow ring is rather thin. The interesting thing is that if you have a deficiency in any one of those three, the yellow, this yellow ring gets wider, and it represents an opportunity for improvement. And so in this case, execution is, is poor. And that means that the individual that's accountable to carry out guidance and assets maybe doesn't have the right training or doesn't have the right skills to be able to execute as well as they should. In this scenario, on the lower, lower right side, there's insufficient assets. The guidance has been put into place and the uh, capabilities of the individual that's accountable to execute is great, but they just don't have the assets needed to carry out the guidance in full. Or you can have this other case where guidance is, is the thing that's um, not good. And that can be the case when there are ambiguities, gaps, or overlaps in the guidance that's available. Maybe you have plenty of assets and the, uh, the person accountable has all of the requisite skills, but the guidance is not up to snuff. The other thing is that there can be deficiencies in multiple elements and the same, same thing applies to the upper half of the organizational reliability model you assess, define, and implement. There could be weaknesses in any or all of those areas as well. So the key thing to remember here is that um, requirements are a double-edged sword. So when authorized requirements, that guidance and assets, um, when they tell the subordinate leaders and team members what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to do it and with what, the other side of that sword is that authorized requirements commit the senior leaders to support what they have authorized. So if you're a subordinate person, how can you place accountability back on the senior person? Think about it in two different uh, criteria, responsiveness and trust and respect. If there's high responsiveness, that's on the right half of this model. Uh, if there's high responsiveness and high trust and respect, you're in the sweet spot. 
So basically, if you have a deficiency in guidance and assets, you tell your boss about it, they respond, they, they give you a solution, either to relieve you of some of the guidance accountability or provide the assets that are needed to carry out the guidance. On the lower half of the right side, this is when perhaps the leader, the, the senior person is responsive, but there's low trust and respect. Maybe you're new to the position, they don't really know your judgment yet. So what you do is identify the problem, development, develop and recommend solutions. Once you present them, that uh, senior person then uh, looks at your judgment and determines whether yes, do it your way or no, this is a different way to do it. Neither, either of these, the responsiveness is the key. On the left side of the model, this is where a lot of people find themselves when there's low responsiveness. So you tell your boss that there's a problem, he or she does not respond to it and you're kind of left hanging. Well, there's two different, uh, both when there's high trust and respect and when there's low trust and respect, the, the uh, response from you should be the same. Notify them of the requirement, notify them of the deficiency, recommend what should be done and document it. Document it in an email, in a written letter or something where you can confirm that the person saw it. And by all means, learn this phrase, unless otherwise directed. What that means is you place the accountability back on that senior person. If that senior person does respond, then great, you got a response. If the senior person doesn't respond, their non-response is actually giving you the go ahead to use your recommended solution and go forward. So that's a way to influence up. So the second poll question I wanted to ask is, does your organization have and use a management system model, such as organizational reliability model, that effectively assigns accountability? And the responses here would be yes, and it is effective. Yes, but it's not effective. No, we don't have one, or I don't know, I'm not aware of. All right, so uh, the poll is open and um, we'd like our listeners to kind of weigh in on the question Thomas posing and uh, tell us about what model your management uh, or what management system model your organization has. Um, and does it most closely align to yes, they have one, it's effective, oh, something's in place, not effective. No, you don't have it, or we're not sure. All right, we'll give a few more seconds for people to cast their votes. That's their voting two days in a row here, it just occurred to me. Don't <laughs> <laughs> on me, I'm going to do this on Tuesday. Okay, let's go ahead and share the results. Um, all right, Tom, it looks like 20% say, yes, they do have, um, a management system model that assigns accountability and it is effective. 29% say, yes, they have something, but it's not effective. 31% say, nope, we don't have one. And then 20% not sure. Yeah, so that's again, pretty typical. Um, I would say that uh, a lot of organizations have a system in place, but it's not effective. And I would also say that there's a large number that don't have any system in place. So uh, something like ISO 55000, where the, the uh, standard for asset management is a really good uh, device to use to put something in place. But 
I propose that the organizational reliability model is a simple model. It's something that's easily communicated and, uh, and it's effective. So uh, just something for folks to consider. Uh, and, and like uh, what I would say too is I, I put out a lot of different things on the organizational reliability model and on leadership uh, skills and, and roles and so forth. I, I say is you don't have to use the things that I say. If you have a good training program in place, don't jump ship and go to you know what I'm proposing just because it's a little different. As long as it does things the right way, then I'm, I'm okay with using uh, different materials. And that's kind of the point with the um, organizational reliability model as a management system model. So let's keep on rolling here. Um, so we've talked now about the brain. We talked about uh, uh, memories, uh, behaviors, habits, and culture. We talked about the organizational reliability model. So now the execute piece of that organizational reliability model is really the productive leadership model. So a leader provided with direction and requirements, applying leadership roles, attributes, and skills through personal and position power to influence others towards achieving goals. Big mouthful, I get it. So how does this model work? So the black boxes are the things that need to come from the organizational reliability model, right? Mission, vision, values, and objectives are the direction. And assets and guidance are the requirements. And so those things, if you think about this model like an electric motor and think about these black boxes as being the bearings on, a mo on the uh, electric motor, what do bearings do? They support the weight and they keep the system aligned and they allow it to rotate freely, right? To perform freely. So when we have that foundation or the, that framework in place, we have a leader applying leadership roles, leadership attributes and leadership skills through personal and position power to influence others and achieve goals. So this is the essence of the model. So we'll talk just briefly about what each of these are. And like I say, when I do workshops or if you read the book, I go into a great deal of detail on these, on these matters. So the leader, the leader, the individual that is in a leadership position, they number one need to want the responsibility to be a leader. They should also have a personal mission, vision and values and a set of objectives that align with their position in that organization. Um, throughout the summer at Plant Services, I did a series of three articles on how to develop a personal mission, a personal vision, personal values. So uh, I encourage you to go and see that. Leadership roles, there's five leadership roles. They are expert technician, manager, administrator, coach, systems thinker, and visionary. And this is the areas where a leader will allocate time when they are acting in a leadership role. Now, I also say that every individual, whether you're an hourly person or a person in a leadership position, you should allocate some period of your workday to personal development, whether that's technical for a craftsman or a tradesman, or whether that's professional for a leader or a manager learning to get better at their trade. And uh, I say that a leader's trade is the performance of their team. So uh, that's a good place to be working. Um, leadership attributes, again, there's five, and they are cons being consistent, being attentive, being respectful, being motivational, and being assertive. And if you take the first letters of each of those uh, attributes, it spells the word karma with a C. 
And yes, I know karma is spelled with a K, but if I spelled karma with if I spelled karma with a K, I'd have to spell consistent with a K. So karma lost. I'm probably going to pay for that. Leadership skills. There's five primary leadership skills: time management, communication, empowerment, giving and receiving feedback, and conflict resolution. Sources of power. There are two power bases. There's position power and personal power. Position power is delegated from person from uh, the people above you organizationally. They delegate authority down to you. That's position power. Personal power is power that's given to you by others, and it could be anyone else. It could be a subordinate, it can be a peer, it can be a senior person, it can be from others outside your organization. It's really how you carry yourself and how you interact with others and uh, your level of knowledge. So these two power bases uh, result in seven different sources of power. There's legitimate power, reward power, and coercive power. Those three are purely position power based and you do need to have position power and you should use it when you need to use it, but you should also use personal power primarily as much as you can. Um, the three, uh, I'm sorry, the two purely personal powers are referent and expert, and then information and connection are kind of hybrid between position and personal power. And I go into a lot of detail on those uh, in the book and workshops. Influencing others, um, this is really about needs and motivation theories. And the three prominent ones that I talk about a great deal, everybody's heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. There's also uh, one called McClellan's needs theory, uh, where people have a propensity to need power achievement or um, uh, affiliation. Uh, and then I also talk about Hertzberg's motivator hygiene theory. And I think that is a much uh, better way to think about motivations and needs. It basically says that the job there's a job context and a job content, and uh, to motivate people, you they have to be in a reasonably good job context, meaning their pay, their uh, benefits, the safety and the workplace, um, the amount of bureaucracy there is. Those sorts of things affect the job context, uh, where job content is how well, um, how many opportunities to do new things to work. Uh, on things they want to work on and so forth, those things that are more motivating. And the issue with uh, Hertzberg motivator hygiene theory is that if job context is not sufficient, then you can try all the motivational things in the world on the content side and you won't get traction. So really good theories to think about. And then setting goals, of course, um, there should be interim goals for making progress towards the objective. And there can also be stretch goals where you see it's possible to go beyond the objective. And of course, you should uh, you know, think about these as SMART goals, right? Uh, everybody's heard the term SMART, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and timely. And uh, you know, one other thing I'd like to leave you with before I go to the summary slide is that um, productive leaders keep their team from throwing gutter balls. And I like this picture because if you think, if you've ever taken a, a small child to the bowling alley, the bowling, you can ask the bowling alley's management to raise those gutter guards up so that when the kid rolls a ball down the alley, um, they don't throw a gutter ball. Because how fun would it be for somebody to, you know, go to the bowling alley and not knock one pin over after doing two or three sets? 
right? It's not fun at all. So I think about a productive leader's job is the performance of their team. So what a productive leader should do is put up gutter guards. And those gutter guards on the left side would be giving productive or, or positive feedback, reinforcing feedback when your team member or your, your subordinate is doing things the right way. And the right side gutter bar gutter guard is the corrective feedback. So when you are attentive and being assertive in making sure that they understand when they're doing something incorrectly, doing that res uh, respectfully, of course. So that's how I like to think about uh, the leader's role. And so um, in summary here, I wanna leave plenty of time for questions and answers here. So um, I did, uh, go over the brain, the human brain, memories, behaviors, habits, and culture. Remember that culture is what most people do most of the time and what people do are behaviors. So if we wanna create the right behaviors, we have to define what behaviors we want and then we need to have productive leaders that guide those behaviors by giving positive and corrective feedback. So to create the right culture and performance, accountability is key. And so we need an organizational reliability model or some other system model that assigns accountability across leadership levels. And then productive leadership is used to help accountable leaders execute. And so um, just in wrap up here, I would uh, say to, you know, feel free to ask me about productive leadership consultation or uh, I do workshops on getting traction through productive leadership plenty of exercises and uh, uh, we keep it we keep it pretty good. Uh, my book, The Productive Leadership System, Maximizing Organizational Reliability. See the uh, ISBNs for the print and ebook. Uh, there's a link there that you can get to my website and that will take you to Industrial Press and all of my contact information. So um, with that, I'll open it up for questions. Great, thank you so much, Tom. We did have a few that uh, that came in, and again, please feel free to type any of your questions into the question box and go to webinar, and we'll make sure to get you to get you answers. Um, one listener asked, "Where do you begin if you don't currently have a system of accountability in place, Tom?" Yeah, so yeah, so great question. Uh, the first thing I would say about that is it depends on what your level is in the organization. So if you're a shop supervisor and you want to put accountability in place, then you do it at your level. You can uh, model or, or, you know, exhibit those types of qualities that would make you an accountable person. And what you're doing is modeling that for your subordinates. If you're looking to do that for an entire plant or an entire organization, um, what I talk about, uh, the productive leadership system, I should say, is it's the idea of having that uh, organizational reliability model and having uh, the productive leadership model as the basis. But it would also start out with creating a policy that states that we are going to be a productive leadership organization. So the whole system includes that policy document, the uh, organizational reliability model, productive leadership system, and a productive leadership development program, right? So that would be making sure that people are educated on the um, policy that you put into place on the organizational reliability model and the importance of accountability and uh, 
putting in place the training programs to bring up everybody on proper leadership um, roles, attributes, skills, sources of power, influencing others and setting goals. So I would say that that's where you would start if it's an entire organization. If it's a subset, a department, a function within an organization, you should create these same things for your level within the organization and then do your best to influence other parts of the organization to follow suit. Uh, if you get traction and you start seeing great results, other people will follow. Um, and there's really great reasons to do this. Um, retention, turnover, uh, grievances, all those sorts of things. If you have a better leadership environment, better accountability in leadership, um, there's a business case to be had uh, for doing so. So I hope that answers your question. Yes, that does lead to a follow-on question is, um, you just mentioned some indicators. What are you typically your measures of success? You know, you've undertaken this initiative. How do you go back and measure the effectiveness? What would you expect to see happen differently? Yeah, so um, back in 2015 with Plant Services, we did a, uh, a leadership survey and uh, there were three parts to that survey. One was demographics so that we could kind of slice and dice the, the answers that we were getting or the responses. The second part was a thing called team effectiveness. And that asked about uh, 20 questions broken down into five areas such as communication, norms, um, and so forth. Uh, and that gave indications on disparities between what team members believed and what their uh, the person that they reported to believed. Uh, and then the third part was a thing called uh, motivation, which was based on something called expectancy theory. It's not an exact number, but it can give you a relative amount of motivation level uh, by respondent. So we were able to uh, set down uh, and, and really analyze that data and what it showed was that the uh, motivation levels of leaders that got uh, training every two to three years or more frequently had higher motivation levels than those that didn't get leadership training, but once every five years or never. Um, so there's ways to measure the individuals. Um, there's also ways to measure the improvement in uh, motivation of team members related to the individual uh, leader that's leading them. And so if that, if there are, uh, if you look across all the different work centers and you see one work center that's very low compared to the other ones, you would have an indication that that particular leader uh, probably needs some help in the productive leadership realm. Uh, getting their skills up to date. So for, for the particular readers, uh, leaders, there are things that you can measure to show whether you're winning or losing or improving or, or staying stagnant. Um, for organization-wise, uh, you can look at different sources, but when you think about turnover, the cost of turnover, uh, if you look at, say, an average hourly worker, you'll see any place between 16% to 70 or 75% of the cost of their annual compensation, right? So that's their wages plus their benefits. So let's just say somebody, uh, and I use a fairly conservative number when I do these, I talk about a 25%, right? So for every turned position, 
25% of the, their annual compensation is the cost of trying to replace that person to fill that open position. And so if that, uh, let's say that hourly person is uh, $50,000 a year in total compensation, well, 25% of that is $12,500. So if you have 100 people and you have you know 15% turnover, you can do the math. And so if you then put in place um, productive leadership and you start driving down that number of turnover, you can actually put a dollar figure. Uh, and of course, you know every every organization may have an actual number that they've calculated for themselves, and you would obviously plug those numbers in. So you can do that. Uh, productivity, you can measure productivity, right? So, uh, you know, in the maintenance world, uh, it's easy to look at uh, something as simple as uh, number of work orders per person per day completed. Right. So if you're disorganized, if you don't have uh, good accountability, it's going to be really hard to put in place a good work order management process and have it stick. Well, if you now put in place productive leadership, you have accountability, you have guidance, policies, plans, processes, procedures and measures. And you have leaders that are, you know, good karma, consistent, attentive, respectful, motivational and assertive you now start getting traction with that work order management process. So now instead of, excuse me, instead of getting two work orders done per person per day, you get four work orders per person per day, right? That maybe will allow you to, uh, you know, get more PMs done, increase the percentage of PMs you get done. That may also result in higher uh, availability and less downtime, right? So there's definitely ways to measure this. Excellent. Uh, and by the way, we've had many, so many questions come in. If we don't answer all of these live, we will be sure to get you answers uh, in writing after the session. Uh, Tom, uh, we have a listener asking, what's a typical timeline for implementing a, a system such as yours or other types of leadership systems? What, what, what would you estimate is a reasonable amount of time? Yeah, so again, I, I would say it depends on the scope, right? So if it's a supervisor trying to implement it for a work center, it can be fairly quick. If you're trying to do a, an entire plant or your entire organization, uh, you know, the number I would throw out would be something like 18 months. And that would all depend on whether those senior leaders in the organization really buy into this idea and understand that they have a gap in this area, because that then uh, allows them to get trained up on all these issues, uh, motivates them to put that productive leadership policy in place that then assigns roles and responsibilities to people within the plant who then are going to be held accountable to put in place uh, or, or to utilize an organizational reliability model. And then you start building out all of the different guidance, starting with the you know higher level uh, policies, plans, and processes and then going down to procedures. So uh, I would say if you're going to do this in a plant, I would say it's a, a good 18 months because uh, remember what's the cycle. Uh, we wanna create the right behaviors. When we do those behaviors for a, uh, an appropriate amount of time, they become habits. And then when you get the most uh, people in the plant doing the same habits, that becomes the culture. Um, one other thing I'd like to say about this, when you read about change management, you read a lot of uh, books that say, well, you have to get everybody to buy into the concept. I disagree with that. 
Um, if anybody's been through military training, you've gone through boot camp or you've been in operational units in the military, one of the things that becomes very clear is that people on your team don't necessarily have to be bought into what you're asking them to do. What you care about is that they're carrying out the behaviors as you've defined them, the right behaviors as you've defined them. If they don't, you know, 100% buy into it, that's okay. We're not, we're not trying to make robots. We're trying to get the right behaviors. So we get the right behaviors then by documenting the guidance. What is it that we want them to do? providing them with the assets that they need to do it, and then productive leaders applying leadership roles, attributes, and skills through power, position, and, and, and uh, personal power to influence others to achieve goals. Okay, so that's a, that's a place where I diverge with um, a lot of the gurus in uh, change management. Understood. Um, we have a listener asking, you mentioned about this, you know, starts from the top, but can you share a best practice on how to get senior leaders to buy who might be somewhat change resistant, you know, kind of set in their ways to buy into the change and, rec- you know, who may not recognize this gap to buy into it? What yeah, so the, the tip that I would give is that I would say without um, any deviation, most senior leaders, one of their biggest frustrations is that when they come up with a program or a policy or a strategy that they want to get implemented, they they will um, publicize it, they will hold meetings, they'll do you know barbecues, they'll get ball caps, all this different stuff to raise enthusiasm to try to get people to buy into it. The, the thing is that if you're a senior leader, you've done all these things and yet you still can't get traction, you still can't get that initiative in place and functioning the way that you envisioned it. And so to me, this whole concept of the productive leadership system is a way to get the organization aligned so that when there's a strategy that comes down, remember the proactive improvement portion, the upper half of the uh, organizational reliability model, it's assess, define and implement. So if we do those things correctly, and then we do the things on the bottom half of the model correctly, we get the right guidance, the right assets executed. So my advice would be that how you get buy-in is to tell senior leadership, this is a way that you can actually push initiatives through an organization because each level of leadership is a chain in the, is a link in the chain. And if the senior person is accountable to their subordinate, that person is senior to their subordinate, there's a continuous chain or set of links and accountability then becomes very clear. It's overt. And so if it falls down in any particular place, that plant manager or the senior leadership team can immediately see where the problem is and they can hold those people accountable. So the the main point is that the frustration with senior leadership is not being able to push initiatives through the system down to the lowest levels. And this is a system that would allow them to do that. Gotcha. All right, so moving away from senior leadership, um, very often changes are implemented and they don't stick. And oftentimes it's because people don't want to change. They're happy with the status quo. 
you know, how do you, what do you recommend, uh, what approach do you recommend when that's the mindset? Yeah, and so this goes back to the discussion on power, right? So if you're, say, a mid-level manager and you're in that position of trying to get the supervisors and work centers below you to, to get on board with uh, a change, Again, if you do your part and you put in place the guidance, the policies, plans, processes, procedures, and measures, and you provide the assets that are required to carry it out, then you try with personal power to influence people to towards achieving the goals. But at the end of the day, uh, you know Machiavelli said that uh, uh, a leader must lead by fear and love. Uh, but when when uh, being provided with only one, a choice of having only one, they have to have fear, right? What he's talking about is position power. Um, a mid-level leader has position power by virtue of their title. They have legitimate power, they have reward power, meaning that they can give rewards to people that are doing things the right way, and they have coercive power, or another word is punishment, right? They're able to give out reprimands or punishments when things are not being done correctly. So. You should always try to do things with personal power through your reverence and your expertise to try to influence people to do things the right way. But at the end of the day, if you're a leader, you're in a position because the organization felt that you have the capability to properly utilize position power if it's needed. And, uh, you know, it's, I always say you, you don't go there first, but at the end of the day, there is properly written guidance and you've provided people with what they need, you can observe their behaviors. If they're doing behaviors that are aligned with what you want, you give them positive feedback. If they're doing behaviors that are not aligned with what you're expecting, you also give them feedback. And by that way, you guide how they perform. Now, once you get to a point where people just refuse, well, there's HR policy that's available for that. And, you know, in the book and in my workshops, I talk about the six step process for doing uh, corrective, uh, you know, motivation, you know, to, to correct poor performance. And that could be either, you know, uh, continuous bad performance or it could be a, a, a simple lapse in judgment that was pretty severe. But there's a six step process on how you hold people accountable. If they do not respond, all organizations have a collective bargaining agreement or a uh, disciplinary procedure that you must not be afraid to use. You must use it properly, meaning that you can't jump to giving somebody unpaid time off before you actually you know, talk to them, give them a documented verbal reprimand, give them a written reprimand, et cetera, whatever the policy is for your organization. Very good. And I think we have time for one more. Um, Tom, if uh, an organization has had some failed attempts at change, how do you build back trust, you know, between the line level employees and senior management in that scenario? Yeah, so uh, great question. Uh, what I would say is that the reason that previous initiative failed is probably because of a lack of accountability, a lack of a system that assigned accountability or a lack of individual leadership on key persons that were, uh, you know, required to implement and sustain that uh, initiative. So what I would say is the first thing to do is be upfront with everybody because they know what happened. Uh, trying to hide it or soften it or make it sound like it's something else is usually a bad plan. 
So what I would say is fess up, say the reason this past initiative failed is because the leadership team didn't do a good job. Uh, it's not the uh, hourly folks's uh, responsibility, it's the leadership team's responsibility. And so this is what we're going to do differently this time. We're going to put in this organizational reliability or some other asset management system that assigns accountability. We're going to make sure people are trained in productive leadership and we're going to drive this new initiative uh, to completion. And uh, that's what I would do. Excellent. Well, thank you uh, so much, Tom. Um, I'm sorry that we couldn't get to all of the questions today, but Tom, if you want to advance the slide, I understand that Tom is going to be at our Accelerate conference down in Florida next week. So, um, and he'll be uh, signing copies of his books and you'll get a chance to meet him in person. Um, and that's down in Fort Myers. But we'll also make sure that we get you a, a copy of today's slides if you request them at the survey at the end of our presentation and we'll also share this recording so thank you so much tom for putting this together it was highly illuminating and uh, thanks for our listeners for taking time out of your day and when we end today's webinar there will be a brief survey and please give us some feedback let us know how we did let us know what other topics we can present and invite people such as Tom, you know, has a wealth of knowledge and so many different things that will help your organization and your program. So thanks all and thank you, Tom, and thanks to our listeners. And uh, we'll see you all the next time. Hopefully we'll see you in Florida next week. Thank you very much. And I, I love hearing feedback and uh, ideas for articles for plant services. So if you have something you want me to address, shoot me an email or text or let me know. Thanks. Perfect. Take care.